Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Hello, Job Shop fans. Another episode of the Job Shop Show with your host, Jay Jacobs. Our guest today comes to us from lovely Boulder, Colorado. Peter Doyle is the owner and president CEO of Hirsch Precision Products. Hirsch designs and manufactures precision machine parts and assemblies and is especially known for taking on the tough jobs others don't want or just can't manufacture. They are a 2018 Modern Machine Shop Magazine's Top Shop Honors Program winner, as well as a five years running winner of the National Tooling and Machining Association, that's NTMA for those in the know, uh, their 6S award. We will talk about those awards as well as the competitive advantages they have gained through deployed technology, as well as some culture attributes that have created a cohesive team environment over the years. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Peter. Well, thanks so much, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You were in Austin last week where you received the NTMA's 6S award again. Congratulations there. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much. That was a, a surprise. We really didn't see it coming, and uh, it's a huge honor for us. Um, you know, we've we've tried to um, kind of apply for that award, but we had no idea that uh, we would uh, receive the honor of, of being the first shop to win it five years in a row. What specifically is the 6S? What, what does that encompass? Sure. Well, um, it's reflective of our, you know, devotion towards um, lean manufacturing, and mm-hmm. so uh, what that award um, aims to do is is find companies that have um, programs and systems and metrics in place that allow it to um, continuously improve, right? Um, and mm-hmm. and I think of all those, you know, success attributes, I think the one that um, is most encouraging um, for us today is the sustain. Um, you know, it's so easy to do some of these, you know, maybe uh, uh, an occasional shine or, um, you know, a set in order or, uh, you know, pay attention to safety pretty reliably. Um, but the sustain aspect of success tends to be um, the one that's trickiest, I think, for most shops. It just requires that you've got the right systems and the right um, sort of team engagement in order to, to um, stay devoted to that. So, uh, yeah, we're really pleased with it. For those who don't know what all six S's are, can you tell us? Oh, sure. So, six S is an acronym, and the six S's are safety, sort, 
set in order, shine, uh, standardize, and uh, sustain. And those are listed in the order of how shops should complete a process. So if you want to create a high-performing, organized, clean workplace that can be a foundation for continuous improvement, safety has to come first. The, the second S, uh, sort, is just about identifying what's necessary and unnecessary. The third S, set in order, means organizing those necessary items so you can uh, use them and, and return them easily. Shine refers to keeping it tidy and clean as you go. Standardizing is about maintaining and improving the standards of the first four S's. And then the final S is sustain. And like I said, that's been the trickiest part of our success program. One of the methods we've used uh, to help is implementing software and systems. Really going back to the late 90s, every machine has had a workbench here and every workbench has a computer. What you said is something that's not typical in the shop. You have a computer at every work center. Every one. And that's expensive, but obviously you see a benefit to it. So why we, did you we yeah, tell, tell us about do. that? Yeah, so, so at the end of the 90s, we were using um, a company that helped with like, like our accounting software. Mm-hmm. We uh, tried to make sure we knew, you know, how profitable uh, we were. And they um, were going to kind of sunset their product. And we knew that um, it was an opportunity for us to reinvigorate how we worked. Mm-hmm. And we went paperless. Uh, we actually uh, created a, a little internal software program that we actually refer to as, as paperless. Um, and it's all on-premises. But mm-hmm. it took all of our three-ring binders where we had, um, you know, job instructions and, um, you know, uh, tooling sheets, set of instructions, inspection instructions, and it put them all online. And um, like I said, that was over 20 years ago, and we've basically been working on that internally every week since then. And so now it's this proprietary tool that's uh, really important for us. It guides it allows us to set up, um, you know, a part the exact same way, even mm-hmm. if, you know, uh, our machines are different or, you know, um, the machinist is different, the, the tools are different. And, and that really helps us make sure that um, we, we manage uh, revision control changes well and that the customer gets the same quality every time they order, even if they order infrequently. And you started this in the late 90s? Yeah. You know, there was another factor, actually. Um, <laughs> you probably remember Y2K. Yes. We weren't sure whether our server in the company was going to make the Y2K switch. And um, so mm-hmm. we kind of needed an upgrade as well. And this software was, you know, one of the iterations of the upgrade was paired along with that Y2K prep. Hmm. <laughs> it's, it's funny to think back to Y2K now. Think about what technology it was. A, it was a big deal back then, and we didn't know if the lights were all going to go out and we'd be in the dark for days or weeks. I remember that. And this clearly. time, and and now we try to turn the lights out. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> we talk about lights out manufacturing. Yeah. So, 6S. Did that? Did you apply for the award because you were implementing it, or 
did you were you implementing six six s without sort of being formal about it and then decide to be more formal about it or did was the decision made in the company that success was important and that's how it got started we have been interested in lean manufacturing principles for quite some time and you know success is is something that's been a part of how we've worked um for for a while i think at one point i asked steve and and uh steve hirsch is the founder of the company uh, he's the guy that sold his Fiat X19 little green two-door coupe to buy the, our first Bridgeport mill. So he's our our director of engineering and just an amazing guy to work with. And I think at some point I asked him about the history of lean at Hirsch, and he said, you know, we were lean before it was popular. Right. right. <laughs> so um, and you know he says that with with all uh, humility. But when the NTMA Success Award um, has, I, I don't know exactly when it started, but. We got involved with the NTMA, I think, around 2006 or 2007. And when we became aware of it, um, you know, we liked the idea of joining this association where we could share best practices. Um, mm-hmm. And the award was just a chance to kind of see where we stood and see if we um, kind of made the cut for what um, success practices were. So, so we had been doing it, and it's actually um, – part of our continuous improvement uh, manager's uh, kind of role. Each year, um, our continuous improvement manager uh, was was submitting the shop for that um, based on kind of what we were doing at the time. So our audience is made up of other job shop owners in a large part. What would you say to a job shop owner who is not formally looking at 6S in terms of how you have a competitive advantage over them, if it, if it, you think you do because of it? That is a really good question. Our customers love seeing the shop. When we have a customer that we think might be a good fit for us, we always start by inviting them in for a tour. I think that success is one of those things that's, easy to talk about, but when you go and you see that people are enjoying their work, when you see workbenches are clean, tools are organized, there are visual management tools in place, the air in the shop is clean, if there's good lighting and signs that people truly take pride in their work environment, all of those things convey whether a true success program is in place. And it can be difficult to convey that through a website. We're, we're trying to develop a website that does do that, but it is challenging. For us, the competitive advantage then is that as a result of success, customers really enjoy seeing the shop. It gives them confidence in our abilities, and that in turn secures more work. I think in particular, a clean shop makes a huge impact on a customer and they associate that with attention to detail and quality. So if you have a floor that looks like you could almost eat off it, and I haven't been in your shop, but I can imagine it's probably along those lines, then that just makes the customer feel really good about their parts that would be made there. So I guess that's a 
a byproduct of the 6S that will help you win customers and retain customers? I think the challenge with success for us um, is, you know, there's a lot of pride with what we've done, um, but it's, it's knowing that good can be the enemy of great. Um, you know, we've got one or 2% turnover. And so um, one of the fun things we're doing recently is we've put together a nine month training course for our cell leads. And um, wow. every two weeks they get together with a, a third um, party. It's, it's actually kind of a, a friend of ours. Um, who's been a great partner for the business. Mm-hmm. And he walks them through a variety of um, both leadership uh, kind of fundamentals, um, because these are considered high potential folks at the company, um, mm-hmm. and lean manufacturing principles. And that has um, allowed us just in these past few months to really stay fresh. Lots of, of ideas um, are being generated as a result of that class. And so um, just kind of going back on that theme of, of sustaining mm-hmm. the effort. Uh, that's, that's been important for us. One of the things that we did at Rapid was we had a leadership program that was run by an outside company. And at one point, the light bulb went off with me that we were growing quickly. We had talented people who were in individual contributor roles and we had to promote them to management roles for the growth. And I all of a sudden realized that here we are asking people to become managers, to become leaders, and we weren't giving them the tools to be successful. And if we weren't giving them the tools, how were they going to approach the job? They were going to look at how they had been managed both at Rapid and at other companies where they were. And in particular, the other companies, we we may not have liked the way that they were managed, but those were the characteristics of management that they were going to carry over. So we thought it was super important to get that training to make sure that they did learn how to become a manager, the basics. And so this is a funny story. The fellow who ran the training for us shared with the leadership team that he brought in a group of eight first-time managers, and he had his curriculum for the hour all set up, laid out. And he said, before we get going, does anybody have any questions? And one of the guys raises his hand, and he says, yeah, what if, you, what if you have an employee and all you want to do is punch him in the face? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. And so this fellow is real good at what he does. And he stepped back. He said, well, first of all, of course, don't punch him in the face. But then he asked the rest of them, he goes, does anybody else feel like this? And seven out of the eight raised their hand. And so he spent the, he threw away the lesson plan for the day and spent the first session on, okay, what do you do when you feel like that with somebody who's working for you? And those are the basic types of management learning that 
I think both of us are, are trying to give to our people that there are proven right tools on how to direct people, but unless you're taught them, you you just don't know any better. So set our set our people up for success. Yeah, man, that that is such a, a great story, and and um, I, I have to say it just dovetails really well with some of the things that that you know are part of my background. Um, I. I sort of learned leadership in the Air Force, and um, that's a fairly structured environment. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I figured out in both the Air Force and some other places um, how large organizations work and, and what that structure looks like. But, you know, having joined Hirsch, um, one of the things that I think is is really challenging as you grow is keeping um, the, the right kind of passion and, and focus on people. Um, that I think we, we try to do at Hirsch. There's a couple of ideas. I don't know if I'll, if I'll kind of frame them really well um, at mm-hmm. Hirsch, but, but these are ideas that, that we talked about and that kind of form a little bit of, um, I guess, our DNA. One is that um, we, we do work that we think matters. So, so mm-hmm. we're somewhat choosy about our customers. Um, and we... I mean, like, like anybody, we appreciate being appreciated, um, for kind of what we provide. We're willing to go the extra mile. Um, and, uh, we think we provide, you know, great service. And so we try to encourage the team to always be thinking about, um, you know, fulfilling their customer commitments. Even if you have an internal customer, you're, you're part of a bigger canvas where we're making a difference. I mean, we're, you know, hopefully we're making a livelihood, but, Mm -hmm. but, um, making a difference at the same time. Um, and we want people who interact with the company to feel, um, I mean, it sounds kind of cheesy, but to feel special, to feel like we, we actually care. We are, we, we try to be responsive. We try to be, um, thorough. We try to, um, you know, maintain quality and, and, um, we don't, we don't take that lightly at all. The, uh, the ideas around, I think I read somewhere that one of the primary challenges of growing a company is developing leaders. Um, yes. without, uh, you know, those middle tiers of leaders, so many organizations struggle. So I, I definitely relate to your story. We've probably, um, you know, we, we've certainly been on a journey our, ourselves of trying to um, bring up the next generation of leaders and, and uh, kind of be proactive about that. One other thing, if I could maybe share sure. a story about our, you know, the, the DNA um, side of it. Yeah. A couple of years ago, the, the leadership team, uh, we um, just around the time it was formed, um, kind of our most um, seasoned employees got together and we did a brainstorming exercise thinking about the people at Hirsch who seemed to most embody what we wanted the company mm-hmm. to be about, yeah. who, were, who were, you know, they just seemed to get it. Um, yep. Maybe it was attitude, right? They were, they were always positive when they walked in the door. Um, maybe it was their, you know, pace where they, they really wanted to be productive, but we, we went through, we sort of identified those people and then we tried to identify the common elements. And from that, we actually distilled our core values. And, um, what we've landed on is, is, um, three kind of statements. Okay. Uh, We are honest and trustworthy, passionate and productive and loyal and committed. Um, about 80% of anything that goes wrong at Hirsch um, 
you know, it, it starts by just centering ourselves on the implications of those core values, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if everybody believes in that, if everybody wants to be the kind of person that lives those out, um, certain things go away. You know, um, trustworthy people show up on time. Mm-hmm. Honest people don't um, throw scrap out the window on their way home. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're right, I mean, yep. I mean if, if you can help someone else and you're and you're committed and you're and you're loyal, then you will. Um, if you're loyal and committed, then you'll participate in a decision. But then. Um, when a decision is made, if it didn't go your way, you're going to, you're going to uphold that decision. You're not going to um, kind of work against it or uh, be in a stick in the mud afterwards. Um, all of those things, you know, those core values have really been important for us um, each day. So I was going to ask you whether you had core values and a mission statement and core purpose, but the core values, did that come did those come out of that meeting or did they exist before and you just, they were reinforced in the meeting? No, that was the first time we've ever had them. It came directly out of that meeting. So we had core values at rapid and core values are sort of one of those buzzwords that everybody should have core values. I, I like yours and the ones that we had, we did not, start by the company by saying these are our core values. We developed ours probably about nine or 10 years into the business. And the same way we looked at who we were as a company and we created the core values from who we were rather than saying this is who we wanted to be. And I think that that's a mistake a lot of companies make with core values is they make them inspirational rather than the DNA coming from the DNA of the company, which it sounds like both you and and I have have done with our companies. So I really like that. Do you have a mission statement or core purpose or any other uh, things that the company revolves around? We do. Um, You know, the the simple form is uh, quality work delivered on time. That actually has, has been with us. That kind of mantra has been with mm-hmm. us since the beginning. And, um, and a lot of people talk about quality and timeliness. Um, you know, for us, we're north of 96% on time and north of 99% quality. And that's, we ship something um, about every 30 minutes. Uh, so mm-hmm. not, not huge, but um, we're a high mix, low volume shop. And so um, we're, we're, we're always working to make that 100%. But, uh, but below that, our, our mission is to provide the highest quality products and manufacturing services delivered on time. We are committed to continuous improvement and to conducting business with integrity. That's what we say. So it's two sentences. Um, it's been with us for a while, and it still really works. Even as we explore, you know, new markets and, and welcome new customers, um, we still abide by that. How do you convey that to the team members? Do you have posters? Do they have it on their workbenches, the screensaver? Are there? How do you do that? Yeah, we we have some of those. Uh, my favorite way that we um, implement it is probably through this uh, weekly team meeting that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about, you know, it's, it's 100% of the company. 
um, and and I lead it. And you know, I, I hope that we're able to get everybody together as we grow. Um, it, it's a little bit hard to get everybody in one room at this point, right. but um, we talk about the key metrics, and then there's a section of that meeting um, where we really just celebrate each other. Um, mm-hmm. If if somebody has helped somebody else or trained or, um, you know, done an exceptional job uh, with a difficult part or caught, um, you know, kind of a quality escape of some kind, those are the things that their peers in the company will recognize as um, really helpful behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, those discussions are often most meaningful, particularly for new team members, because when they join, they can understand, they can start to almost glean what matters right here and mm-hmm. what do we care most about so so uh the thing that i've been thinking about recently is just that leadership is very difficult to systemize um you know it's it's very different it's very difficult to to take a mission um and kind of either print it out right or um put it in a piece of software and mm-hmm. assume and you know cross it off a list uh, I think the leaders at a company really need to believe in it. They need to, you know, be cohesive and unified and really be passionate about implementing it. I couldn't agree more. And I think it comes both from the top down and the bottom up, but particularly you'll see companies who might have a mission statement like what you put forth, but it's the end of the month, end of the quarter, and there's a part with questionable quality and rather than getting a buy-off from the customer, they need to meet a revenue target or want to meet a revenue target, and they'll just ship it with their fingers crossed. It's not coming back. And that's the type of integrity to a mission statement that the leaders have to show. If they, if you don't demonstrate that, then how can you expect the people who you're leading to live up to it? You know, I um, every owner has to feel the temptation to pay too much attention or put too much weight on metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think that great leaders take a long-term view. Um, you know, you, you really don't want to be compromising the future for um, today. And I guess our approach through thick and thin over the years has been that if we're delivering 100% quality parts, 100% on time, surely there will always be room in the market for that. Absolutely. So you talked a bunch about leadership. How do you, what, how do you see the difference between being a leader and being a manager? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of good um, kind of definitions out there. Uh, in my own words, it feels a little bit like leadership is in the heart and management is in the head. Um, you know, I, I love uh, progress and, and I've always been a goal oriented person. And so, and, and like I mentioned, you know, kind of being in the air force and then, and then uh, in some of the other experiences I've had um, structure was always a part of that. And it's always very easy to, to figure out for me, you know, how to, structure a project and then trace performance back to originally identified goals. Leadership to me is, is in the heart. Um, you have to know yourself. 
you have to know what what you think life is about. Um, you know, I've always appreciated ego-free environments, um, and mm-hmm. I think all of our team members, you know, do as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I've for for myself and for the company, um, you know, uh, the the financials have always been important, but they've never been the goal. Um, as long as our financials are sustainable, we've been much more excited about um, the kind of work that we get to do. Um, you know, being in Boulder, there's all kinds of interesting startups, people with great ideas, um, and and we've we've enjoyed that part of it rather than focusing too much on the metrics. Um, so yeah, just to going back to the difference between leadership and management, that, that's my gut feeling. It, it, leadership takes um, it takes some wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it takes that long-term view. And, and it's something that's in the heart. Um, whereas management is a lot about, uh, more of the structure and execution and, and, you know, the things that, uh, we all learn in, in school or, you know, over time. So talking about execution, you had mentioned you have created a operating rhythm and probably those weekly meetings are part of it, but can you, describe what the operating rhythm is like and how it was developed just so that an owner who's listening, who doesn't have an operating rhythm will understand what value is created by first of all, having it. And then what does that actually mean? Right. Uh, Well, sure. Um, And, and, you know, I'll start by saying um, whatever this looks like, uh, or this changes depending on how large a company is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, sure. So, so if you were to go back ten years ago, um, meetings were relatively more expensive than they are today, right? And and we still try to keep that um, kind of in check. But I know a lot of job shops, um, you know, kind of feel like uh, they're they're challenged by meetings. Sure. So our operating rhythm is a series of pre-planned interactions um, uh, that occur throughout the year, and it ties um, the company's um, you know vision, mission, strategy, and um, and kind of priority initiatives for the year, which we call big rocks, mm-hmm. to how they get executed, um, and so going from the top level down, there's an annual strategy um, offsite, there's a quarterly business review, um, and there is a weekly leadership pulse meeting, um, as we call it. There's a, there's a weekly production meeting, and then um, there's some checkpoints on the shop floor kind of throughout the week where um, those, th- those messages are cascaded. Um, mm-hmm. There's you know, ship change, and then every two hours we, we do a production update. So the, the intent is that we've we've got this format for communicating messages, and it's standardized. And now that we've been doing it for almost three years, I can say that it has really helped with our um, accountability and our follow through. You know, it used to be that we would get together and identify projects, and then three six months later we sort of say, oh yeah, whatever happened to that? Mm-hmm. And that 
really doesn't exist for us anymore. Um, we're really good about, you know, making sure that we're, we're cohesive as a team. Does that kind of answer your question about what it is? Sure. The one, so the weekly meetings is, is everybody in the company involved in a weekly meeting or is that just management? No, no. Yeah. So, so it's a cross-functional management team and we use, um, software that we, that we, uh, kind of customize. It's called QuickBase. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it allows us to review, um, what's going really well. We celebrate good news. Mm-hmm. We talk about, um, kind of our key metrics. We talk about our priority projects, our quoting activity, um, and kind of any up and upcoming projects. We follow through on actions previously identified. Um, but the bulk of the meeting is actually covering issues. And the goal is um, that you you prepare for an issue to present an issue in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, and an issue can be um, it's a little bit of a, a misleading term in, in some environments, but it's either an announcement or it's something that meet the leadership team needs to address. And mm-hmm. so um, we try to tackle it and, and cross it off the list in the same meeting. How long are the meetings? The, uh, we, you know, talking about being lean, they were 90 minutes and we've, um, <laughs> trimmed them down to 60 and, uh, we're hoping to, you know, some, some weeks, um, we, we can, you know, scrunch that even tighter. Okay. So the individual contributor on the floor, how does the message get conveyed to them? You said that there's some type of meeting that happens. That's right. Um, there's a the director of manufacturing is in um, the the weekly leadership pulse, um, and then there's a production pulse, and mm-hmm. the director of manufacturing who's in the leadership pulse basically cascades messages in the production pulse, which covers you know more granular uh, issues. And it, and then uh, those supervisors oh, okay. cascade it to the to to, to their teams. Gotcha. So just to give the audience a sense of the size of your company, how many team members, how many shifts, square feet, that sort of thing? Sure. We've got 75 people right now, um, and, and we run two shifts. And, uh, you know, that, that was right at the level that our kind of advisors said we would encounter challenges around communication and culture. Mm-hmm. And so two years ago, we really made this effort to develop um, an organizational chart and use it like we hadn't before and, and um, up, you know, implement this operating rhythm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, as our team grows, I feel like we're really well prepared to scale because of the, the systems and the training that we put into place. So, um, certainly that's the, that's the hope is that we continue to grow. So when you implemented the operating rhythm, what unanticipated pluses came from having the meetings that you just, Oh, wow. Of course, in retrospect, that makes sense, but you didn't anticipate that that would happen. Yeah. I mean, it's probably, uh, it's probably a little embarrassing, um, because, you know, we've got great people and we always had, mm-hmm. and, and there was an amazing amount of value. 
in just getting people together to make sure efficiently we were providing an update about what was going on in each function. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the the leaders here have, have grown up with the company. And so when we had, mm. you know, 10 people, we were here. And, and there, you know, each of us over time um, ha- has had to figure out what to let go of, what to delegate, what to learn. But there came a point prior to having the operating rhythm where um, engineering might not know what quality was working on. Quality mm-hmm. might not really understand the experience of, of uh, machinists that roll up under the, the manufacturing organization. Um, you know, folks may not know what kind of decisions about capital investments we were making in, um, you know, within finance, uh, maybe related to, you know, an upgrade to the facility. And so these are all the, uh, you know, so, so when you're asking about the, the unanticipated value, it was amazing that if you just provide one sheet of paper for all functions to say, these are the major things that are going on, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, it, it's really helpful uh, for, for a growing organization. And then, like I said, the other major value um, that seems really obvious is just simple follow through. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if strategy is 10% and execution is 90%, um, just the discipline of getting together in a room with peers in a very trusting environment and saying, hey, you know, how are we doing on that project? Yeah. Well, actually, uh, you know, I, I kind of let it slip this week. Okay, how's it going? You know, what should we do? Is there somebody else that can help? Is it still a priority? Um, do we want to do we want to change the way we're executing it? Um, all all of those discussions happen, and they didn't really have a a consistent forum prior to um, the operating rhythm. I think you really hit the nail on the head there. We saw the same thing. We had an operating rhythm at Rapid. We used a formal one from Vern Harnish called Scaling Up. At the time we started with the Rockefeller Habits. But Yeah, the, I, I enjoy that book. Okay. One of the things that I always tried to keep in mind is that if you're not communicating – if you're not giving people information, then they tell themselves stories. And it may not be a story that you want them to be thinking. It probably is inaccurate. But in the absence of information, people are going to make up a story just because that's how we think as people. So we were really aware that we needed to provide as much information as possible to communicate as much as possible. And we would do regular surveys of the company and query on different things. But one of them was always on communication. And one of the things that frustrated me, but at the same time made me smile because I knew how much effort we were putting into it was that they said that there wasn't enough communication. And I would sit there and think, what do you want? We're communicating (laughs) so much more than we ever were. But it just reinforced that you can never communicate too much. You you just can't communicate too much. Over-communicate and you will see positive benefits from doing so. So that was a huge takeaway for me. If you're growing, you have to be willing to learn new things. Um, but, but you know, 
Jay, I'd love to hear some stories from, from the kind of explosive growth that rapid manufacturing saw over the years about just how you manage that degree of change. There's got to be some cultural elements to that. And as we've grown kind of at a quickening pace over the years, um, we, we still feel like we have lots to learn. What, what, um, what, what changed over time? Did you feel like you guys got better at that? Um, what would, what would you tell, you know, us or other shops that are growing significantly? Well, what, what were the best practices? A, a huge part was the op, implementing an operating rhythm. And yeah, we got to a certain, probably around the size you are now, maybe a little less in terms of headcount. And I realized that all the stuff in my head wasn't being communicated. So how could I expect the company to move forward on my ideas if they didn't know about them or if they did know about them, they didn't understand the thoughts behind why I thought they were important. So bringing in at first it was the executive team, but what I saw was the more people we involved in a operating rhythm in the structured meetings, the better we performed, the happier people were. So it was just a self-reinforcing mechanism to facilitate growth, get people involved. And probably one of my proudest moments was toward the end where we came up with a thousand square foot sheet metal cell that could be duplicated very easily. And it was spearheaded by the general manager of the sheet metal division. And all the pieces were put together by his team. And when I mean pieces, the thoughts on how it would function, the prototyping of it. And I really felt like a parent in the sense that all I had to do as a manager or a leader was say yes to the money that they were requesting to fund the prototyping of the concept as it went along. And then finally the equipment that was put into the full cell. We had a ribbon cutting and I didn't really know much about how it operated beyond the metrics of the key performance indicators that they had defined as success. It was just a wonderful experience. And so circling back, it was all about going from me as an entrepreneur to team and what has clicked with me is that team is all about communication. Obviously there's other parts to it, but communication is the core of everything. I think another piece, which I'd love to talk to you about how you're specifically implementing it is technology is a huge part of how you are able to grow without adding square feet or headcount from what you we've discussed. And a lot of people think of technology as some big piece of equipment. Like I know you do have flexible, flexible manufacturing systems, but the software that you have that runs your company, it didn't start out as the big piece of software that I assume that it is today. It started out as a smaller piece serving a particular need and then 
you saw the benefit of it and you kept adding on and adding on. And that's, I think, a core of how Rapid was able to grow is that we, I always would say, let's automate the road so that the people can do what automation can't, that they can do the value add. And for example, would I rather have them entering numbers into a spreadsheet or would I rather have them on the phone talking with a customer on how the part might be manufactured better? But if they are entering numbers in the spreadsheet, they just don't have time for that conversation. So let's free them up. There's tools that, that we can put in place that allow them to do that. So what I realized over time, what created the value for Rapid and what couldn't easily be duplicated was that everyday incremental innovation automation of the pieces of the company that took away the rope tasks and allowed the people to really shine and do what they did well. Maybe you could comment on that and just tell me how you are working along those lines. I, I totally agree with um, you know, everything you've said. And you know, going back to um, years ago at Hirsch, we've always found that investments in technology, um, you know, they didn't eliminate jobs and they frequently um, helped team members not do the repetitive, you know, maybe more, more menial, menial, you know, rote work that, that um, they didn't really enjoy. Uh, and so from, uh, from the machining standpoint, um, you know, I would say bar feeders have been a part of our lathe purchases for many years. Um, multi-pallet machines were another, um, you know, consideration for every, uh, mill purchase. And, um, and, and that, you know, kind of continues to be the case mm -hmm. as far as what else has happened with technology. You know, I heard the other day, um, that in the past 10 years, most of the um, innovation that's happened among machine tool builders is actually kind of within the controller. Um, the, the um, you know, components, um, the, the overall build structure of the machines hasn't changed as mm -hmm. much over the past 10 years, but the, the software, um, what data we're able to, to review, um, the, the kind of user um, interface portion, um, for, for machinists, all of that has undergone significant change. And, and we see it as well when we go to IMTS, you know, we see this proliferation of software companies in manufacturing. Um, we've all read about the idea that technology and manufacturing are kind of getting married. Um, and I find it incredibly exciting and energizing that it's, it's really happening. It's, there's not a one size fits all. There's mm -hmm. no silver bullets, but, but, now, if you really know your business, you can identify a, a software out there that can really help. So it's a couple of the things we're um, doing. As you know, uh, we're excited about paperless parts. Um, we're, we've also partnered with Zoller, um, and their tool management uh, software will help us um, streamline our tools and manage it better. Um, uh, we're using, you know, for, for some reason, it took us too long to move to Office 365. We, we've now done it, I think, a couple of years ago, and it's been incredible. We have automated so many processes through SharePoint and Flow mm. and, um, you know, the uh, 
the, the power apps that Microsoft provides. These are off-the-shelf um, products, and we've figured out how to use them, and it's really saved Could us. Could you give us you know, a specific, because I just moved to Office 365 myself. With, oh, sure. And can, But can you give us some specific granular examples of what you're able to do when you are using the collaborative tools that Microsoft gives you there? Uh, is it okay if I give you like five or six? Sure, sure. <laughs> so, so it's just been incremental, but, um, y- you know, we do our own payroll and mm-hmm. um, now vacation requests allow um, basically save the finance function some time. We've moved our quality management system fully into SharePoint. So all of the revision control around documents is automated. You, mm-hmm. We used to have a paper flow process where everybody had to sign off that we were going to change a document in the QMS. Now that's mm-hmm. all electronic. Um, another one is our Hirsch training academy, which we mm-hmm. use to, to, you know, help people, you know, progress in their careers. We used to be paying um, for a soft, a separate software package. We've now built that entirely in-house and it's customized to our you know needs. We've got um, places where you can review, um, you know, the company's vision. We've got capital expenditure lists that everybody can look at and see what the company is going to do next, um, which I think is um, really helpful. We've also got um, a wellness program that we used to pay um, to manage through an external software, and that's now been migrated. So there's there's actually a lot of things that we just continue to, to make progress on. Continuous improvement is another one so now. You, you, um, you said that you yeah. are doing this yourself in-house. Do you have a dedicated person to doing this, or do different people share the role? How easy is it to learn to do these different things? Um, the, so we do have, uh, an IT function and, um, you know, that started with our software Mm -hmm. culturally, because we've never been afraid of technology and and software, we've actually got a number of people that in some part-time way are responsible for doing it. Um, I would say, you know, our continuous improvement manager and then our training and development manager here tend to be the resident experts. These are people that kind of had the confidence to, to think that they could figure it out. And mm-hmm. even though they didn't know that they, they sort of sank their teeth into it. And um, I, like I said, I'm surprised we didn't do it earlier. And then the other um, piece of technology that I didn't mention um, was uh, Power BI. This is a, a business um, analytic tool. Um, it's a bit like Tableau or Click where you can, you know, have some drag and drop um, dashboards we're starting to use that, and it it is the visual representation of you know um, dozens of different databases and, and tables um, that run the company. And so now we can tailor dashboards to your position. If if your position is you know a can you just software. can you just explain what a dashboard is? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sorry. It's it's not like in your car. Um, right. This is a. Uh, it, it's a, a screen, um, and a dashboard is um, a selection. It's basically important information. So, so um, take the director of manufacturing. On any given day, he might want to know what's going on with the machines. Mm-hmm. And so he could create this dashboard that tells him the real-time status of, of the machine. Um, maybe mm-hmm. somebody else wants to know 
you know, um, who's in training today? Well, we could, we could look at that or we could pull up, you know, career conversations for the team. We mm-hmm. could pull up, um, historical trends of, you know, how much time we spent in setup and production. Um, and all of these things just help us make better decisions more, more quickly. So a dashboard is a, um, kind of just a, um, a set of charts and graphs and, and, um, you know, kind of key performance indicators, like you mentioned earlier, that is tailored to a person's job. And it's typically displayed on, um, you know, a, a touch screen or a computer to monitor. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And those are things that you are implementing because I know most job shops don't have dashboards. Yes. Um, and there's actually an interesting story about how that happened. Um, a couple of years ago, I started hearing this funny statement when I was talking with machinists. Um, there's kind of this conversation about like, how do we know if we have a good day when we don't ship the parts that come off the machine for a month? If, if everything is measured right, by the hold, hold on, rate. hold on. That, Peter, that is a fundamental great question that we <laughs> yeah. don't often think about. But you're, you're absolutely right. If somebody is on the floor, how do they know they had a good or great day? That is awesome. Well, that is where, that is where our dashboards began. Huh. Uh, we we wanted anybody in the company to know at any moment whether they were having a good day. Huh. And so we, you know, we got machinists together with um, technically savvy, you know, IT folks. Yeah. And we had this open discussion about what do you think makes a good day? What kind of company do we want to be? How do we measure our success? And then how do we convey that to ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that every person understands how what what role do I play in the company's overall vision and mission? And so now, within each um, within each cell, we've got this um, flat screen that basically shows up to the minute how it's going, and um, the it's designed by the machinists for the machinists. We get together regularly and figure out how to make it better, but it shows all of our customer commitments and, and we actually plan customer commitments, not just by saying hey, a box of a hundred parts needs to leave the dock on right. Friday. We actually know six weeks in advance that at 10 Oh two, uh, you know, the Akuma MX or the Akuma, you know, uh, MU 4000 needs to be in setup for that part because it's going to go into the assembly with a hundred parts and get out the mm. door on that Friday, six weeks from now. And so everybody knows, how it's going. And, and we, then we look back, we, we use a, a metric called production schedule adherence. And um, that's like kind of like the minimum. We can do more than that, but the production schedule adherence measures um, uh, like our direct customer commitments. So our system can tell us mm. um, today, this is what we told the customer we were going to do. And we never, we, we never want to renege on a commitment that we made. Mm. Right. It doesn't matter how small or how large. If we said we were going to do it, that's what we want to do. So, so we use this production schedule adherence, and we, we then can kind of review our progress um, each day. And then we, we've now been doing it for a couple of years. And I'm actually really proud to say that 
it's slowly ticking up. Um, you know, our ability cool. to basically adhere to plan um, uh, just continues to get better. So that's that's really great. If you're not measuring it, then you won't make progress. So somebody who wants to put a dashboard, you said you got together the machinist with some IT people. Were those internal people or did you contract that out and, and how long did it take and how did you get the data? Or is that the data just come from your systems that you already had in place? Uh, so they were internal people uh, and we had the data. Um, and I would say two things. Um, you know, a concept that most job shops, I think, don't really think about is master data management. But if you're like on the beginning of a journey towards digital manufacturing, mm-hmm. I would read an article about it if I was a job shop owner and I would ask for some advice and I would try to set up um, a really clean architecture of, of information because what you really don't want to do is spend too much time trying to figure out why the, the numbers look like they do. Um, you want to have real confidence that you, you understand how that information is being collected. Um, and there's mm-hmm. lots of, you know, kind of good um, best practices, if you will, for um, what makes for a great metric. That's one side note. The other, the other thing that I, um, suggest we're using uh, SQL, which, you know, many years ago was unique. There's actually a lot of people out there that can help with creating a SQL database and plugging it into, you know, a Power BI. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's not um, as, as kind of rarefied a skill as it, as it once was. Mm-hmm. Um, the other principle that we've made and this is, this is interesting, and we're, we're continuing to study this, but when we started building our software 20 years ago, there really wasn't the proliferation of um, software packages. Mm-hmm. MTNet had not been created. Right. And we were relying on people. Every two hours, a person posts the number of parts they've produced. Yep. We've, we've held to that because we think, ultimately, um, it's not what happened but what are you going to do about it? And so um, if, if as long as you have a way of, of understanding what happened, um, which we do, then you're ultimately going to have a conversation with a person to determine why, and they're going to be fixing it. That's a great point. I think a lot of shop owners are not... Well, computers are not their friend, and so they're scared of taking the first step. My thought is that you query your workforce, and there's almost certainly a younger member of it who loves to play computer games, who has the skill set, or at least the aptitude if you unleash them, and that's a lot of how we did it at Rapid is we let the people just try and we were so pleasantly surprised with what they were able to push out in really not in a formal sense, but that was the that was the beginning for us. Same with us. It was a machinist that started programming the software. Yeah. Yeah. So we've so. run up a Across an hour here, and 
this has been a great conversation. I do have one last question for you. And sure. you are in a great area of the country, Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> if someone was visiting Boulder, what are the, the top three things you would recommend that they see or do in, in the area? Oh, man. Uh, what time of year would they be visiting? <laughs> well, I'll throw one out. Is I visited Boulder and I hiked up the Flatirons for about a half hour and then came down, and that was just, to me, spectacular. So, And I know it's, it's so accessible. It's right within the city limits. Absolutely. Um, you know, that was one I was going to suggest as well. Uh, those are beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, Boulder's known for having some great cafes, um, uh, down in the downtown area, you know, uh, Pearl street is, is a nice place to see. It's kind of a walking, um, promenade if you will. And, and, uh, you know, you can get a nice bite to eat down there. Um, the other place that, uh, if, if you have time is great to see is the Indian peaks wilderness. Um, it's a little bit further into the foothills, but you can get just this glorious view, um, at almost any time of the year on the mm -hmm. peak to peak highway, uh, back there. So Super. those are a couple of things that I'd suggest. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing some of the, I think real unique areas of your shop that are not commonly pushed as hard as you and the Hirsch brothers have pushed them. Some really good thoughts today. And particularly, I think a lot of the things that we talked about are so important to both retaining the workforce that you have because people are, are so critical and they're so tough to find today, but also the things that you are doing make Hearst Precision Products a great place to work. And so that helps you with your recruitment efforts. And I think others who are struggling or I shouldn't necessarily use the word struggling, but others who are looking to add to their team, these are the characteristics of a great place to work that will attract the best people. So kudos to you for having the type of company where you are, what, what's your, re, your retainment you lose? Uh, it's one or 2%, you said? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, I'll say that as excited and engaged as we are, um, we do not have it all figured out by any means. And, um, you know, whether it's somebody listening or somebody visiting Boulder, um, we would love to brainstorm ideas, um, uh, you know, and, and if anybody has any questions, of course, um, you know, please feel free to ask. But uh, I know that uh, we're on the journey just like everybody else. That's right. What's the best way to reach you or your company? And by the way, Hirsch is spelled H-I-R-S-H -H for anyone looking you up on the web. But are there, do you have a Facebook page, an email you want to share, anything like that? Uh, we do. Probably the, the best way is, is through the website, um, but we are slowly learning how um, – social media and, and marketing fits in to a modern company. So we have a, um, a LinkedIn page. Um, we don't have a Facebook page, um, but uh, yeah, you can always call us or you can visit us uh, in person if you like. 
What is your web address? Hirschprecision.com. Great. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the Job Shop Show. Have a super day.